Good morning, my name's Jenny Morley and I'll be reading the Bible reading this morning. The Bible reading is from 1 Kings chapter 16 and we'll start reading at verse 29 and we'll go through to chapter 17 verse 1. So 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 29. Ahab becomes king of Israel. In the 38th year of Azza, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. I sh- should have told you, this is from, the f- it's from a tree. It's from the fruit of the tree. This is the skin of the fruit which has been peeled and shaped and then put together. Um, photo opportunities into the service if you would like. Uh. <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again that we have this opportunity to meet, to worship you, to hear from you. Help us to consider the truths of this passage and what you're saying to us in order that we might follow Jesus closely and obey and please you. We pray in his name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. We're beginning today a new series on the God of Elijah. Go for about nine weeks. Take us up until, yeah, certainly into November, uh, perhaps even... um, right up until carols or something like that. So please pray uh, for this series. Pastor Charlie is away this weekend. He's celebrating um, uh, Elena's birthday. It's her birthday tomorrow. She turns 60. It's not 60? 40. One of those big ones anyway. Yeah, she's only 50. She's just a little young kid. Um, And so they're having a great time down on the Gold Coast with their family and as well as having a rest. Pastor Tracy will be here in the next service and she's our preacher for tonight. And she will also be doing this same passage as we work through Elijah together and so too will Pastor Alvin. Um, 
Elijah is an interesting man, and the Apostle James picks on him, well, picks him, chooses him to be an example of a mighty warrior in prayer, and that he certainly was. But James makes this comment, Elijah was a human being just like us, just like us, had the same nature as us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, after three and a half years, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. The thing that I wanted to note this morning was, James says that Elijah was a person just like us. And of course, he's wanting to say that in order that his life, his faith, his obedience, his prayer disciplines are within reach. Uh, that we can do similar things to what he did, as we'll see this morning, because he believed as we believe in the same God. But on the one hand, it's also difficult to believe that Elijah was somebody who was just like us, certainly initially, because he's one of the most outstanding prophets in the Old Testament and he's referred to numerous times in the New Testament. He's the person who called fire down from heaven out of a blue sky. He's the guy who brought down, uh, executed 450 prophets of Baal. Oh, um, if you've got a Toyota and it's 306ZBW, 306ZBW, um, if you'd like to move that, please. I think you're blocking a driveway or something and the neighbour needs to uh, move their car or something like that. So everybody, please bow your head, close your eyes so you can't see anybody leave. <laughs> Elijah was a man who called fire down to heaven. He had 450 prophets of Baal um, executed. Uh, he ran 30 kilometres in front of a horse and chariot, fed by ravens, multiplied food to a family, raised a dead boy to life, and in fact, he didn't die. He was caught up in a whirlwind in a fiery chariot, just like us. You see how it sort of rubs a little bit? But he is just like us as we look at this passage together. He had the same nature. He was human, not superhuman. He put his sandals on one foot at a time, just like we do. He had his fears. Chapter 19, he certainly faces pretty deep depression. He was a person, an ordinary person, is James's point, who obeyed a great God, just like we can. He wasn't a superman, he was an ordinary man. But in his life, you could certainly encounter the supernatural, you could encounter a great God. It was Evan Roberts who said, we don't need great faith. What we need is a little faith in a great God. The emphasis is upon the Lord that we follow. He was just like us. Well, how was Elijah like us? Well, he was like us in that he lived in an evil time, just like us. Here is some background for you. Omri was his father. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Just a little bit of historical background, and I know some of you don't like history. I apologise, but I won't be long. The first king of Israel is Saul, followed by David, followed by Solomon. Solomon is dead now about 58, 60 years. And when Solomon dies, there's his son Rehoboam and another bloke, Jeroboam, have an argument. And the 10 tribes come and they offer a deal to Solomon uh, to Rehoboam, but he rejects that and it ends up being this massive civil war, this split in the kingdom. Ten 
tribes head north under Jeroboam and the two tribes are loyal under Rehoboam. So now you have the kingdom of Israel, if you like, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. You have this separation. So we're focusing upon, and Elijah focuses upon, the northern tribes. And then after Jeroboam, Ahab, who we're coming to this morning, Omri is the sixth king, and each one is bad, whether they lived a long time or not. Jeroboam reigned for 22 years. Omri reigned for 12 years, and look what it says about him. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sinned more than all of those who were before him. The northern ten tribes are in a spiritual moral decline. It's getting darker and darker and darker. The people start out, Jeroboam is the one who says, just like Aaron did with a golden calf when they came out of Egypt, he makes two calves and says, there is your gods. This is Yahweh, a bull. And he had one in Bethel and one up in Dan, two locations because he wanted to unite the top ten tribes. He did more evil, Omri did, than all of those who were before him. And Omri's son, Ahab, Omri rested with the ancestors after 12 years, buried in Samaria. They started the city of Samaria. And Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. But look at Ahab. Remember, Elijah is a man just like us. Why? Because he lived in evil times, just like we do. Ahab, his son, uh, son of Omri, did more evil than his dad did in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Elijah was living during a pretty difficult time. How was Ahab bad or worse? Well, look at this verse, verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of what Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had done. Oh, that's just minor stuff. That's, let's step it up. Let's really see what sort of nonsense we can get up to. So he not only thought it trivial to commit the same sins that Jeremiah had done, but then, how bad was he? Well, he got married. Not that that's bad. But he married an idolatrous, deliberately, intentionally. Deliberately married somebody who was not a follower of Yahweh. Married somebody who was not Jewish. Married somebody way outside the kingdom or the nation of God's people. <clears throat> married Jezebel. And then not only did he marry Jezebel, and she was the princess, she's the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and he worshipped, and she would have grown up in the palace and she would have worshipped Baal, the storm god, the god of thunder and lightning and rain and productivity of the crops. That's why they had Baal all through the ancient world and particularly the Canaanites. Israel's becoming more like a Canaanite nation under Ahab. Not only did he marry Jezebel, not only did he marry someone who was an idolater, he in turn wanted to become an idolater. He abandoned Yahweh, the worship of the Lord, and he wanted to worship Baal. And not only did he worship him, he built a temple for him in Samaria and set up an altar for him in the very heart in Samaria. Samaria is in the heart of the land of the northern tribes. So right at the very centre of the nation, it's now state-funded idolatry, the worshipping of a false god. Elijah was a man just like us because he lived in evil times. Not only did he build the temple and build the altar, but he also made an Asherah pole. That's like a pole or a a tree it could have been, but they were beside the statue of Baal and they formed an image of a couple, husband and wife. And it's through their worship, which often involved temple prostitution, 
uh, it would lead forth to productivity in the land. That was what's behind this. And so Ahab does more to arouse the anger of the God of Israel than all of the kings who were before him. He's the seventh king of the north and he is the worst. And it'll repeat itself. There are still some bad kings to come after Ahab, but it's in Ahab's time that God, for 58 years, he's patiently waited. For 58 years, God hasn't intervened. But now at this point, God's going to do something. In Ahab's time, if there's evil in the government, then it's not long before there's evil in the kingdom. If there's evil in the king, then before long it'll be in the nation, in the kingdom itself. And this verse is put in for us, I think, to demonstrate this. It's in Ahab's time and probably under his permission or maybe even his instructions that a man by the name of Hael, he came from Bethel, he rebuilt Jericho. You know the story from Joshua chapter 6 when Israel goes into the Canaanite land and God says, you know, don't marry any of them, don't take any of their stuff, destroy it all, be separate, be holy, do exactly what I want you to do. They conquer Jericho and God gives this judgment, curse, upon it. It's in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city, this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. God knocked it down and said, leave it down. Don't rebuild it. If anybody does rebuild it, it'll be at that judgment. The cost of your firstborn son, he'll die. And when it's concluded, when you put the gates on, at the conclusion of the reconstruction, your youngest son will die. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens in Ahab's time. Hiel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And then he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagab. In accordance with the word of the Lord is spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. God keeps his word. God says he's going to do something, he will do it. If God gives a promise, he'll keep it. And if God gives a warning, be warned. He'll keep it. Well, Ahab and the people of Israel at this time are basically saying, yeah, God said that, but it doesn't happen. It's not necessary. They're indifferent to it. They ignored it. They rejected it. And you can understand why to a certain extent, because for 58 years, they'd been doing things and nothing else was happening. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. They got away with it. Nothing's going to happen. We can do it too. And in the Psalms, we are told, Psalm 50, this is the Lord speaking, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now um, I arraign you and set my accusations before you. When God does not intervene, when God does not swiftly judge or respond, it's not because he's indifferent or incapable, it's because he's being patient, giving an opportunity for you to repent, to change your ways. As the Puritans used to say, God doesn't uh, deliver his bills every Friday. He's patient with us. He gives us time. And just because you're getting away with something, don't think that God is indifferent to it. He will. He notices. He doesn't ignore anything. Um, and the Lord has never left himself without a witness. He's always had somebody there. In the time way back before the flood, he had Enoch 
and Noah. Um, in the Exodus, he had Moses and Aaron. In the days of the judges, Deborah and Samuel. In the days of Ahab, Elijah and Elisha. In the days of the Reformation, he raises up a Luther and an Erasmus and a Calvin. Today, in the midst of all of the science and theories about evolution and everything that's been, God's raising up scientists who are Christians, solid Christians, who are able to speak into that arena. God has never left himself without witnesses, the Apostle Paul preaching. He's shown his kindness by giving rain and crops and food and filling our hearts with joy. God has never left himself without witness. And it's happening even today in nations, Islamic nations in particular, but not only. God is sending dreams. You know, in the, in the New Testament, it talks about, quoting the prophet Joel, that your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Hello? So I dream dreams. Young people have visions. Even in the midst of all of that, God through dreams is communicating with people who are, far out, who are away from Jesus. And they have a dream about somebody dressed in white or somebody with a special book. And suddenly a missionary turns up or a Christian on a bus or something happens and it's like, oh, I dreamt about this. And people are coming to faith. Our God is a living God and he is at work. Fifteen people become followers of Jesus worldwide about every minute. It's about a thousand an hour coming into the kingdom. It's amazing. God is at work and he's never left himself without witness. What about those who have never heard the gospel? He has never left himself without witness. He'll do it himself. He'll send an angel. He'll send a dream. He'll let you know. What do we know about this man? Well, he was like us because he lived in evil times. But Elijah was also like us because he knew the same God that we know the true and living God, the only God. We don't know a lot about Elijah. We don't know anything about his parents. We know this. We know his name, Eli-Yah. Remember Jesus on the cross said, Eli, Eli, Lamak Thabakthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, my God, Yah, short for Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. That's the meaning of Elijah's name. The Lord is God. His parents gave him that name. So they were obviously believers. We know he came from the, well, not came from, but he was living in the area of Gilead, which is across the Jordan. It's on the other side from where the, you know, the northern kingdom is. And we know a little bit about Gilead. It's a mountainous region. It's a forested area. It's got deep valleys and streams running through it. He's a mountain man. He's a bloke from the bush. As my dad would say, you could smell the gum leaves on him. He was a rough basic. He's a meat and one veg type guy, this area, Elijah. As you read later descriptions of him, he didn't wear silk and fine clothes. He wore this black camel's garment with a leather belt, just like John the Baptist. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. Scholars are not sure. That's the NIV translation. The Christian Standard Bible translates it differently. Now, Elijah the settler, among the settlers in Gilead. The text says that he certainly was in the region of Gilead. We don't know where he is from. Is Tishbe a place? And if it is, well, we've never found it, not yet. 
But it's also, the Hebrew word can be translated, it doesn't mean a place, it's a description of people who would be described as nomads or settlers. They've come from somewhere and they have settled there, in which case the mystery just continues. Where is Elijah really from? Don't know. And it's because he's not the focus of attention. We don't need to know these details. The focus is going to be upon God, not just upon this man, Elijah. So Elijah, the settler, from among the settlers in Gilead, a man of prayer who is praying. And up until this point, if you put the scripture and compare scripture with scripture, the drought is not for three years. We are told it's for three and a half years. But when he goes to Ahab, he'll tell him it's going to be for these next few years, for these next three years, which, if I'm reading the text correctly, then it means the drought had already been there for six months. No rain, no dew for six months before he goes to Ahab. And he goes when God tells him to go. And he'd already prayed and asked God to shut the heavens. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But I want you to notice this. Elijah goes at the instructions of God and said to Ahab, how did he get an appointment with a king? Here is this rough nut, unheard of and unknown, talking to the king in an ivory palace because Omri built the palace in Samaria and it's made out of ivory. It's in museums today or part thereof. If you go to the land of Israel, you can see some of the remains of it. They live in this midst of amazing affluence. And here comes this mountain man, simple, basic, and somehow into the presence of the king and delivers one of the shortest messages, if not the shortest sermon in the Bible. And he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. Delivers the message, turns around, Walks out. Ahab had no time to ask any questions, no time to discuss anything. This was a bit like getting a 4B2 and banging him over the head just to get his attention. And it hadn't been raining and no dew for six months to this point. Initially, you may think that the court of Ahab may have laughed at such a strange thing for this man to say. But it hadn't rained for six months. There was no dew on the ground. If you look at the land of Israel, then it's usually quite green. <clears throat> and it's green because of the winds that blow in off the Mediterranean. And it has two rainy seasons in a year. But it's also because of the dew which falls heavily upon the ground. No rain, no dew. It's going to get dry. And in fact, in the next chapter, chapter 18, you'll find that Ahab himself is sending people out trying to find grass for their donkeys and horses and it's going to be dry. And it's really a challenge to what's been going on because Baal is the god of rain. He's the god of thunder. He's the one who's supposed to provide the moisture for the crops to grow. And here is God throwing down the gauntlet and saying, who is God? Is Baal God the one you've built a temple to and an altar to and the one you follow? The one you're funding statewide? Is he God? Well, let's find out. Let's see if he can send any rain. There'll be no rain, Elijah says, except at my word. And of course, he's not referring to his own self-importance. He's really saying, as the Lord directs me, then I'll respond accordingly. 
Let's analyse his sermon just very quickly as the Lord, the God of Israel, not Baal, the Lord is the God of Israel, as he lives, that God is not dead. To Ahab and perhaps to the people of the north like that, God was not real, that God may have been considered to be dead, that he hadn't done anything in 58 years in response to things, and now suddenly he comes his prophet. You say Baal is God, and I say Yahweh, the Lord, is God. Let's find out. As the Lord lives, you can forget him, you can ignore him, you can deny his existence, but he lives. And because he lives, he acts. He does things. He doesn't do them necessarily in our time, but he does act and he sometimes, often is patient and gracious, kind towards us. As the Lord God of Israel lives, the NIV translation is whom I serve, which is what it means, but the actual words are, as it is I think in other versions, before whom I stand. And I like that picture. Before whom I stand. That's what Gabriel said to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. My name is Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. I'm his servant. I stand before him, awaiting his commands and his instructions, and I obey. That's exactly what Elijah is saying. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. I stand before King Ahab. Most of us would be nervous and maybe anxious a little bit, but Elijah appears to be bold and strong because he was aware of a far greater king whom I serve, before whom I stand. That's a magnificent picture of what we should be like as the Lord's followers and servants as well. He is fearless. Every person in that court had more money than he'd ever seen in his life. They would have been dressed magnificently in their silk robes and everything else. And here is this very basic man with a chaff bag and a leather belt or whatever, delivering a message fearlessly because that's how God equipped him and wanted him. Then he gives his prediction. There'll be neither dew nor rain for the next few years. It'll turn out to be three years, except as the Lord directs me. That's fearlessness. That's boldness. Accept at my word. Elijah was a man, not a man, not just a man who knew God, not just a man who prayed, but he was a man who knew and read God's word. Because we are told, whoops, nah, missed it. We are told in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, that God through Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, when you go into the land of Israel, make sure you obey me. Keep my commands and I'll bless you. If you disobey me, if you start worshipping idols and going after other gods, then I will shut the heavens and there will be a drought until my people repent and call out to me again. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. Solomon repeats that in 1 Kings 8 and it's repeated for us again in, 1 Chron in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It's like... That's what God had said would happen, and now it is happening. Now the drought is coming. And it was God keeping his word, God fulfilling his warning, and God trying to get their attention. Elijah knew that, and he was praying, Lord, you said, if we follow idols, then you would shut the heavens. Well, the north are following Baal. 
building temples and altars and everybody's going after him and denying and denying you. <clears throat> Shut the heavens, Lord. It's not a terrible prayer. It might sound it initially, but what he's really doing is saying there's something far more important at stake here. That's you and your relationship with God. And I'm prepared to pray for tough things to happen in order that you might get your life right with him. Maybe that's something we need to take into account in our own families on this Father's Day. Because God certainly does keep his word. Elijah lived in an evil day, just like us. And so he is similar to us. Elijah knew the living God personally and was fully obedient to him. And as we go through this story, you'll see God asked him to do some very unusual things and Elijah is obedient. Sometimes he hesitates. He is human. He is like us. But ultimately, he will obey. And Elijah was a man who prayed biblically. The drought was a challenge. Who is God? The punishment fitted exactly the offence. They're following idols, and so God sending a drought. And Elijah was a guy who prayed earnestly, and he prayed biblically. You can't read that. I can't read that. The other questions that are available, they would have been sent to the Connect groups, and they're available over here. I think they've been printed out for us. Let me read them to you, and then I'm going to pray. What did you learn about God from this talk, from this passage? What do you already know about Elijah? What sort of knowledge background do you have already? And see if we can add to it. If Elijah was an ordinary person, just like us, why do you think God used him? Elijah lived in a dark time and so do we. What did Elijah do that we could also do? His message, his sermon, which bit of it did you like the most? That it was short? <laughs> what does it reveal about Elijah? What do God's delays in acting against wickedness reveal about him? And finally, does God need to open any doors for you just like he did for Elijah as he got before the king? Let's chat to God and then after the service to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, we are reminded that you are the true and living God, that you are our Heavenly Father because of your plan of salvation, because of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and because of the working of your Holy Spirit within us, convicting and drawing us to him. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Embolden and strengthen us like your servant, Elijah. Help us to take your word seriously, to pray earnestly, and to obey you completely. Heavenly Father, may your will be done in each of our lives for the honour and glory of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.